Hi there. Just a warning. There are mentions of suicide in this episode, so please listen with care. Thanks. Welcome to The Deep Dive, a weekly podcast that takes a deeper look into the happenings at the Walrus. I'm Sheena Rossiter. On this week's episode... Like, I felt that, like, Jerry had left me in this situation that I couldn't fix, I had no knowledge of, and I felt that everybody was kind of just against me and expected that I would know these answers. And my reality felt so skewed because I had gone from middle class to like this fairy tale lifestyle. We'll hear from Jennifer Robertson, known as the Bitcoin widow. She was married to Gerald Cotton, the founder of Quadriga CX, which was believed to be the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in Canada, where users could exchange Bitcoin for Canadian dollars and vice versa. As the price of Bitcoin skyrocketed, Gerald became very wealthy. Jennifer, still in her 20s at the time, lived a lavish lifestyle alongside her tech entrepreneur husband. That is until Gerald Cotton, or Jerry, suddenly died in 2018. He was 30, and he died while on an extended honeymoon with Jennifer in India. Not long after his death, it was exposed that Quadriga was a Ponzi scheme. Quadriga owed more than 76,000 users a reported 215 million Canadian dollars. That was over 160 million U.S. dollars at the time. Then many people started to question, what really happened with Jerry's death? That's when Jennifer Robertson really enters the picture. Her fairy tale life with Jerry turned into a nightmare after he died. She started to get trolled online, and many angry Quadriga users were looking to her for answers and their missing money. Now, in her memoir, Bitcoin Widow, Love, Betrayal, and the Missing Millions, Jennifer tells her story for the first time. Here's my conversation with Jennifer Robertson. So for people who don't know the full story, I just kind of want to go back to the beginning a little bit. How did you and Jerry first meet and how did you become romantically involved? I had met Jerry on Tinder and I had just separated from my marriage to Jacob. My friend said, it'll be fun. Go on, meet new people. And, you know, I met Jerry and then I didn't anticipate meeting my next husband on there. It didn't take long for us to fall in love and to start our kind of whirlwind relationship. How did your life change when you got together with Jerry and when you got married? I grew up in a middle-class family. My parents were often living paycheck to paycheck. I had never come from money or had experienced what it was like at all. And then, too, I was also struggling because I had been left with a lot of the debt from the divorce. Like, lots of money was something that I had never really had before. And then when I met Cherry and his company kept growing and the money kept coming in, it was the relief that you kind of feel and the security that you feel when you have money and you're not living that paycheck to paycheck lifestyle. It is really comforting. My life went from worrying and working three jobs to all of a sudden we could do what we wanted and dreams that I thought would never happen for me 
started to happen. You know, he, I always would say he was my, my Prince Charming and he made all of my dreams come true. You mentioned quite a bit that you really didn't know much about what Bitcoin was or what Jerry really did for a living. In fact, you mentioned that you didn't really know much at all. Have you become more tech savvy or do you have a better understanding of it now? I have a bit of a better understanding of it, how it works and how Quadriga worked. Before, I didn't really understand exactly how the trading platform had worked. I was shocked that you could hold your money in there for like longer periods of time than it took to make a trade. And I know that might sound for people um, who understand trades and finance and cryptocurrency a little bit better, but that was something that was never my forte. So kind of learning about that was a shock to me and Jerry never really explained it. And to be honest, I never really asked again because it wasn't like so much of interest. You know, Jerry and I would talk about different things. I knew, you know, and also I, I feel that for many people, cryptocurrency is very confusing. And I have heard a lot of people tell me that they've watched a documentary or they've read a book on it and they still don't really understand it. And so that's where I kind of was at too. And, you know, I just trusted that it was Jerry's business and what he did. And, you know, I was kind of focusing on my own work and my own life. How secretive was he about what he did for a living and his business? It wasn't like he was secretive with his business because his business was a registered corporation in Canada. He had thousands of users. He was the largest cryptocurrency exchange in Canada. He was registered with FinTrack. I know that he worked with the RCMP whenever they provided him with a warrant for somebody's account. So to me, like all of these things made sense. Like that's, it's, it's a legitimate company. And for people to say that, how did you not know? I was like, well, I there's no way I could possibly, I didn't have access to the inner workings of the business. And I would never have been able to see all of his trades and what he was doing. And to be honest, even with cryptocurrency, even understanding how the trades are even working and what he was doing with client funds that were coming in, because it, it's, it's cryptocurrency. It's not our normal currency. So it's 2018. You get married and you go on your honeymoon, which is supposed to be extended honeymoon to India, also to check in on an orphanage project that you're working with. During that time, Jerry suddenly dies in a very shocking way in a hospital. Can you take us through what happened there? I believe we were about a week into our our honeymoon and Jaipur was going to be the last stop before we flew into the city where the orphanage was. And I think we were about to spend maybe three days in Jaipur. And when we landed in Jaipur, he had said that the plane ride was terrible and that his stomach really hurt. But for the past six months, he had been saying that a lot. His stomach hurt, that he wasn't really feeling well. The doctors assumed that his medication wasn't working anymore, so they had switched him on to a new medication. And, you know, we were at the belief that it would just take some time to work. It wasn't uncommon for Jerry to feel sick, especially when traveling, even at home. It wasn't as concerning as maybe it would be, you know, if he hadn't had Crohn's disease and this wasn't kind of a common occurrence that happened to him. And then, like, you know, the evening kind of went on and I could tell that this was much more serious than normal. You know, I was like, we have to go to the hospital. And when we went to the hospital, I was very 
vocal with the doctor saying that he has Crohn's disease. You know, I called his sister-in-law saying this is what's happening. The medical staff and his sister-in-law deemed that, you know, this is food poisoning and we're going to do everything we can to help him. And, you know, the, the hospital was great. The doctors seemed to take good care of Jerry like he was immediately seen in the ER. Then, you know, all night he just was, he wasn't, like, it didn't seem like he was really getting any better. They wanted to keep him one extra night, and they were going to give him an x-ray the next day. Oh, and the assistant manager from the hotel said, like, do you want to drive to, you know, get some things? And Jerry really wanted his laptop, and I knew that. I think that was the longest time Jerry's ever been separated from his laptop, because we left in such a hurry from the hotel the night before. I took the offer to take a ride back and, you know, kind of like have a shower, get Jerry's laptop and anything else that he might need. And then like by the time I got back to the hospital, like it just, it everything just went, it was just like I left and he had food poisoning and we we're going to get out the next day. And all of a sudden he was in critical condition and a doctor turns to me and he says, loss of life is a possibility. And I'm like, what? He was fine yesterday. Like we were, you know, we were out for lunch and laughing and enjoying, you know, being a brand, like a newly married couple. And to hear that this person might die is just, is, is, it's so overwhelming. It's like a tsunami. And, you know, I ended up fainting because I just couldn't, couldn't understand what was going on. And so then he ended up having, they told me, they had shown me an x-ray and in the x-ray they had seen that there must be some form of hole in his intestines, like a perforation that was leading to a bacterial infection in his abdomen, which then was causing sepsis. And the sepsis had gone so far that it was starting to cause his organs to fail. And so he ended up having two cardiac arrests and they were able to revive him. And then the third one, they were unable to revive him and he passed away and it was the loneliest feeling of my entire life. What happened next and why did you wait a month to say anything after he died? In January, before we announced that Jerry had passed away, I had many conversations with Aaron Matthews, who was, you know, Jerry's top number one contractor. I had told him that we have a responsibility to absolutely everybody, his clients, his contractors and me that to do everything by the book. And so that's what we did. That's what we went with. I followed the lawyer's advice, everything that they said that, you know, we should do. We did promptly and we took their guidance. And as much as I regret the backlash that happened against me for that, I don't think I would have changed anything because I did everything right and by the book. And that is that is how I typically would move through my life. And um, no, I, I don't regret making those decisions. Canada's largest cryptocurrency exchange is in hot water and thousands of clients have millions of dollars in frozen assets with little information. The company is Quadriga CX, and it announced that it filed for creditor protection with Nova Scotia Supreme Court. This is just one in a series of bizarre financial and legal twists that started last year that have included recently the apparent sudden death of the company's young CEO, just 30 years old. How has your life changed since Jerry's passing? To all of a sudden be the center of attention 
and to be so unbelievably hated. You know, I had felt in my mind that I hadn't done anything. He died. It was his company. I listened to the lawyers and I followed everything by the book. And, you know, I was just just so shocked that it, the story went so viral about me. That was really difficult for me because, of course, I mean, reading terrible things about yourself on the internet is hurtful. And to not be used to that, like you're not a public figure, was really hard for me to kind of accept and push aside. So it really hit me really quite hard. And then I felt like nobody, like I felt that like Jerry had left me in this situation that I couldn't fix, I had no knowledge of, and I felt that everybody was kind of just against me. The parent company of the BC-based Quadriga CX says it lost access to the cryptocurrency after the death of its 30-year-old CEO, Gerald Cotton, in December. The missing coins are held in so-called cold wallets, and that's a type of offline storage that protects against hackers. Cotton had the only virtual keys to those wallets when he died, leaving thousands of investors in limbo. And they expected that I would know these answers. And my reality felt so skewed because I had gone from middle class to like this fairy tale lifestyle. And the thing is, too, it wasn't just always some money. Jerry was a really thoughtful, loving husband. The way he treated me, the way, you know, our relationship was, our conversations, our experiences, everything about Jerry was just, it was just perfect. And, you know, I look back now and I'm wondering, was that him or was that just the him that he wanted me to believe he was? And so I had to also deal with that. And, you know, I'm feeling terrible about the users that need money and that want their money and they're out of their money then having everything kind of taken away from me was really hard because in my world, all of those things were ours. The house was mine. The, you know, my company that I built was mine. Like everything I felt believed with all my heart that they, they were mine and they would never be taken away. So to, you know, be this realization that you were going to lose everything after already feeling like you've, like actually already losing your husband who was the love of your life is it is it is devastating absolutely devastating with all the trolling that has happened after his death do you feel that you've been sort of a scapegoat in this whole situation I understand what Jerry did was absolutely terrible and I do understand how the users have felt very wronged how they're hurt and you know I do sympathize with them and I, I do like hope that they understand some might believe me some might not but I really did everything I could buy the book to help them with all the knowledge that I had at the time. I do feel that people wanted someone to blame and I feel that the person to blame in this situation is Jerry and because he's not here someone else had to seemingly I think take the blame and I do think that I took on more of that than than I think was reasonable or fair. Why did you decide to go public with your story in this book? So I decided to go public because there were so many conspiracy theories and there's so many misinformation in the media. And I wanted to provide the users that Jerry had stolen from that this is what happened. 
And this is like, you know, what we tried to do, this is how he died, so that there would be some answers for them in the wake of all their financial losses. I had hit bottom. I was being, like, everything in my life basically was taken away from me. Like, my, my husband, my house, my job, everything that I could, like, possibly, like, possibly could think that was, like, safe and secure. And I felt so, so alone in all of this that... When I tried to take my own life, and it didn't work, and I came back from the other side, and I've actually been able to rebuild my life, I really wanted to share that with the general public as well, because I know that there's lots of people suffering with losses too, and they feel like there's nothing left in the world. And that's how I felt. I felt like there was nothing left for me. When were things able to turn around for you? I had given a lot of thought, and I wanted to get out of the drama and the mess and the legal procedures that were happening against Quadriga. And when I reached out to my lawyer and we tried to come to a very low settlement just so that I would have enough to be able to start a new life, that's when I felt that things started to be able to turn around. When I was able to really start grieving the loss of Jerry, when I was able to have more privacy, I moved, I started a new job. So I had all these kind of new things that were leading me down a new path. That was when things I felt started to turn around. What's life like now for you? I'm soon going to graduate in the spring with my Bachelor of Education. So I've started a new career and I'm 35 weeks pregnant right now. So I'm so looking forward to being a mother. I'm having a little girl and I just can't wait to meet her. So, you know, I it's hard to imagine three years ago I felt like my life was completely over and now it's starting again in so many different new ways. And it, and I feel like, you know, I have control of it this time. Congratulations on the new pending edition. Is there anything that still haunts you about this? Or are you worried that it will, like, follow you throughout life? You know, Sheena, I do. I actually, I feel like everything that happened with Jerry and Quadriga is like this black cloud. And it just kind of, you know, some days it's right above me. And then some days it's kind of a little bit behind me. And then other days it's farther. But I'm constantly worried if somebody knows and if I'm getting treated differently because of what happened with Quadriga and I feel like I'm never going to get this like sense of peace again because I'm constantly kind of living in this mystery of why did Jerry do this who was Jerry did Jerry actually even you know, did he really love me? What kind of person was he really? And I feel like those questions, like, they continue to haunt me. And, you know, I was just reading this book the other day, and they mentioned how, you know, calming it is to just kind of sit in your own thoughts with a cup of coffee and just feel this peace. And I feel like I, I, like, part of me is, like, I really hope that I can one day just sit in, like, peaceful thoughts instead of anxious, worrisome thoughts and just kind of find peace again. Because even though I have moved on with bettering my life and rebuilding, I feel like I still, I don't have that peace of mind. I don't have that feeling of being safe still. And I would really like, I'm really trying to focus on getting back to that place. Are there any concerns that you think that the trolling might be reignited from the release of the book or are you not concerned about that? Yes, I'm concerned about it, but I feel like I've already been exposed to so much 
And like, I am much stronger in regards to reading or hearing comments about other people's opinions or um, what I might have known or didn't know. And I've really come to the realization now that, you know, I know exactly what happened and I've said the truth and this is all that I can do. And it, that actually has even helped me to be able to face any kind of the trolling because I'm able to just be like, well, I've said the truth and this is all that I can do. Whereas before, I wasn't saying anything. I didn't know what was going on. I felt very, very confused. So now I feel like I have a lot more, a lot more control. That's my conversation with Jennifer Robertson. Her book, Bitcoin Widow, Love, Betrayal, and the Missing Millions, is out now. In the March-April issue of The Walrus, we ran an excerpt of the book called Confessions of a Bitcoin Widow. It's an as-told-to piece by Stephen Kimber. Carbon Starnino was the editor for it. The March-April issue of the magazine is out now, and you can read Jennifer's excerpt on thewalrus.ca. I'm Jonah Brunet, and here's what we've been talking about this week at The Walrus. We were impressed but not surprised by the reaction to Jennifer Robertson's story, Confessions of a Bitcoin Widow. This excerpt was shared widely, finding its way to the far reaches of the internet, and some readers went even further down the cryptocurrency rabbit hole by reading some older crypto stories we've done at The Walrus. If you want to read more on the strange world of cryptocurrency, check out Ethan Liu's articles, North Korea's Mysterious Cryptocurrency Ambitions, and Will Cryptocurrency Be Alberta's Next Big Boom? We were also watching closely as Ottawa police moved in and arrested Freedom Convoy protesters. This got some of us talking about political division in this country, a theme we visited several times over the past few years, such as in Sarmishta Subramanian's 2019 article, Is Canada Broken? We are currently working on a story related to the recent trucker protest in Canada's capital. Keep an eye out at thewalrus.ca for that upcoming article. And as always, the links for all these articles can be found in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of The Deep Dive. It was produced by Angela Mystery and me, Sheena Rossiter. I also edited this episode. Thanks so much to Jennifer Robertson for joining us this week. Music for this podcast was provided by Audio Jungle. Our theme song is This Podcast Theme by Implus Music. Additional music is Stay Cool by Loops Lab and Podcast Intro by Implus Music. You also heard Moment by Serge Cuadrado and Piano Moment by Zakhar Vlaha, provided by Pixabay. Additional sources for this episode were provided by CBC and CTV on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe to The Deep Dive from The Walrus on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave a review and rating. It really helps people find the podcast. Until next week, when we take our next Deep Dive. <laughs>